All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. Ignition sequence start. The first day I didn't go hard enough. I didn't get a great start position on the grid. By day two, I was knackered. Day three, I didn't think I could do it. And then day four, I felt better. Day five and day six, I was absolutely flying. Six. Devon or Somerset? Somerset. Mountain or road? Mountain. Logistics or litter? Litter. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Five. You know, it's sort of like everything goes in in beautiful sunshine and hard ground, and then it pours around and, and, and it's horrendous. Four. Yeah, in any event, you know, it doesn't matter whether you cross the finish line of first or, or 2000th, that actually you you have a similar experience across, yeah. across that finish line. Three. You run on adrenaline and caffeine. It is very demanding, so when it stops, you do go a little bit cold turkey. Two. Some of the ridiculous hours that gets put into events by all people working on them. No, I think ridiculous things are done by ridiculous people. <laughs> okay. One. And I would, I would speak in English to the journalists, so then the interpreter would, would dub over me, basically. <laughs> Zero. I don't think anything is quite lives up to the Kumati World Bar Race as a, as a, a sporting accolade. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes. Field Dispatches. Welcome to Field Dispatches, the slightly late follow-up episode 2 of Field Dispatches, which, between you and me, is the show where I just get to have a good catch-up and get to know a little bit better some of the interesting characters I get to meet from the events industry. So since our first episode, which came out back in May 2017 and featured the lovely Annabelle Holland, uh, it's been another busy event season. I've had plenty of concerts and festivals and festivities, and I'm sure you guys will have too, plenty of sportives and marathons. And uh, I even had the chance for a, a cheeky little escapade out overseas as well. But more on that in episode 3, which hopefully won't take another year to come out this time. But for now, prepare to encounter a world of athletic endeavours, uh, marathon-like sight challenges, international achievements, intergalactic standards, interestingly enough, and, uh, and all sorts of other things. Thanks to our guest today, Chris Green who is a well-known name amongst the sports and athletics world. Uh, he's going to be talking us through some of the biggest and some of the best sports experiences the world has to offer. We're going to be discussing the Olympics and Tough Mudder, to name just a couple, falling from one career path to the next and being able to wing it like a pro in events. Uh, we're going to be talking about Tokyo and the magic of Japanese efficiency, um, some of his times competitive mountain biking in southern Spain, um, we go over some of the best mar marathons and runs in the world and uh, generally talk about some other bits and bobs like um, good work-life balance and trying to balance your year out and all sorts of interesting stuff. Oh yeah, and of course, our omnipresent subject of choice here on Field Dispatches, 
the weather and its endless challenges. But anyway, let's get straight back to it because I'm sure you're all dying to know why Chris is also an authority on NASA's Mars rover. I began by asking him how he got started in events. Well, I to supplement my, my relatively poor income at the time, I went to work on the tour of Britain uh, as actually as a an assistant to the racing element, but just just really kind of being at the race, knowing what's going on, grabbing the you know the certain riders at the right time, making sure that, that all the management knew what was happening because I come from a, a bike racing background, and uh, I, I dropped into the conversation with the organisers that I used to build steel masts in Scotland, uh, and very quickly ended up building the Finnish gantry and not doing the assistant race director role. And Swallowed you up in this new direction. Just to yeah, and from there met way. various people, and because the events world is quite transient, as people spread in different directions, I got pulled in different directions with them. So from there, went to work on the Olympics, uh, met a man called Martin Salt, and um, went to the Tough Mudder events with him. And then really through the other people that I met at Tough Mudder have now spread out into lots of other events. I had the option to do the road race or the mountain bike race. And I chose to work on the mountain bike race. Couldn't do both because the, time, the, the timings conflicted. And the job that I agreed to do was um, to mark out the course so the, the the obstacles for the mountain bike race were there but they needed someone to fill in the actual layout of the course mark it do the taping and just generally you know put up flags and, and, and arrows and that sort of thing and then i had a call so we did the test event then randomly in the january of 2012 i got a call from the organizers um, asking if uh, i would like to uh, ride one of the course motorbikes because they've got a lead motorbike at the head of the race and a tail motorbike at the head of the race and I've got a, a motorbike riding and racing background as well and um, the criteria was that I had to be happy to ride it in front of 30,000 spectators and 80 million people across the world on TV who would be watching the event live but it all went yeah. successful when I yeah, we were, we were told very, very directly, do not screw it up because at every single Olympics in the past, the, the, the they'd had issues with the motorbike riders either being too far ahead, not being ahead enough, falling off, um, showboating where they shouldn't be. And, and the criteria really was that the lead bike had to stay maybe a, a couple of minutes ahead of the, the first mm. riders so that the marshals can close the crossing points and then the tail rider stays one corner behind the last rider and and then the marshals know to close the crossing points and then there's also like a no lapping rule so as as the leaders approach the tail the the lead motorbike overtakes the tail motorbike and then the marshals uh, the, the, the organizers then remove the riders between the two motorbikes so there's there's a there's certainly a marshalling element to it, to uh -huh. it as well. so, uh, so i did that 
And uh, do you feel like you quite confidently can say, raise the bar then? If it sounds like we have a lead motorbike messing up yeah, we were, right centre. Yes, we were the, the first pairs not to uh, have problems. And we, we actually, we were asked to go to Rio. And it, it actually, I, I didn't go. Um, Donna Fox, who was the other marshal for London, who was at the time, um, I think she she just won or, or was about to go to the Worlds and won the Women's World Trials Championship. She went to Rio. I didn't because the budgets were very tight and there was no money available to go. So I'd had to self-fund. I'd also just got a big contract here, which I didn't want to uh, jeopardize. And I also felt that if something could go wrong, it would go wrong in Rio. And I knew that living on the mountain bike venue was 10 animals and plants and bugs that could do serious damage and potentially kill you. And I just felt that actually it all was, was looking a little bit dubious. So I sidestep Rio. Yes, but if the opportunity is there for Tokyo, then I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> You're a fan of it. You've been there before, haven't you, to, to yes. the last side of the world. I yeah. know very little about Japan, but some of the yeah. stuff you were saying previously sounded very interesting about Japan. Is there any key aspects you love about the place there? Yes, I love that when you get off the aeroplane, you stand on a train platform, you give your bags to the Japanese post office at the end of the train platform, you get on a very fast train, you go into Tokyo, oh, you walk straight trains. to your hotel, and your bags are already there. Somehow, wow. through magic, it's there. Only explainable through magic. <laughs> yes, it's the only, the only explanation because <laughs> it can't work, but it seems to. So they must. They're going to have a fantastic time running at an event like the Olympics in Tokyo. They can yeah. do that kind of thing. They just apply their magic yes. to the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that Tokyo Olympics would be incredible. And Tokyo as a place is incredible as well. And luckily I went with a guy who, who lived there for 14 years, so he took a lot of the guesswork out of travelling around the city because it is so complicated. Uh-huh. There's no English anywhere. This is a new and strange environment at first. And it's pretty stressful yeah. if you don't know what's going on. But it's, yeah, it's a pretty special place. What were you doing in Tokyo previously again? Was that from a previous career, wasn't it? In a completely different sector, am I correct? Yeah, I was giving a speech to journalists with a UN interpreter about the 2009 Mars rover. And what was your expertise? What were you an authority on the, the Mars rover? The company that I was working for at the time fabricated stuff out of titanium and... They'd done it for sports equipment, which is how I got to them. They did it for the military. Uh, they're based in Tennessee. And the way they were fabricating the titanium parts, which JPL wanted, who are the nuts and bolts side of NASA, they could do it with effectively a zero failure rate. And to have a, a, have a, a part which essentially you know, wouldn't, chance I wouldn't fail going to into space and land on Mars was pretty important. Yeah. So I was there with a computer animation about how the Mars rover would work and I would I would speak in English to the journalists and then the interpreter would, would 
dumb over me, basically. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so that that's what I was doing there. You were mentioning earlier you've kind of applied some of your expertise to from a previous career to an event being the Tour of Britain. Yeah. Can you think of any other times you've applied your expertise in other ways to your more recent career and events on Tough Mudder or some of the other events you've ever done like? I think with events, the interesting challenges are that you can't plan for the interesting challenges. Mm. Because there's so many variables, and yeah, in any greenfield site where you've got equipment and people and, and vehicles, and and also to a degree, you know, a lot of these events have various time and budget constraints, so that you can't just put in place everything, and there's an element of just winging it as you go. I think any experience that you have from any background is always applied whether it is knowing that having a large rock under a piece of loose trackway could cause a problem to figuring out how to keep something up from you know the wind mm-hmm. uh, which isn't hasn't got anything necessarily kind of anchorable to it. you know there's there are so many times when when you just have to put your thinking cap on mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of pull from anyone's resource that may or may not have an idea that may or may not work. Yeah, an awful lot of logical thinking needed to be applied to a lot of different objects and things all coming together which don't normally... Yeah. Quite often you're, you're interacting with people who aren't necessarily logical thinkers, so, so you have to work out what the challenge is, what the consequences could be. You also have to point that out to other people and, and you know, several times we've had to deal with something which could have been a potential problem before it became a problem mm. and pointing out that to someone that actually this great idea won't work at all and not mm. only could it not work it could hurt someone yeah that I, I think that's the that's the sort of biggest challenge of actually identifying things in greenfield sites which just could be catastrophic if something bad happened does anything spring to mind in those situations start tense yeah um I don't know if you remember those star tents, but I've had two events now where... Gosh, where, these, these are the bar tents at Suffermudder that were used as the yeah. had the bars inside them, but they're essentially yeah. just like one pole in the middle and then a tent-shaped canopy. Yeah, and a, and a sail. And you know, if the wind's not blowing, you know, they, they work great and you can put them up in one place and, and they're perfect. But you know, essentially what you're erecting is a huge sail yeah. with a pole in the middle of it that will break and and I've been to several events actually now where we've, we've you know we've been out there in the middle of the night dropping these things and 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 now you know we, you kind of know now that not to put them up when you know when that that, uh-huh. that weather yeah. could be bad and then you know other other challenges like you know getting people out of places stuck in vehicles and and you know that that's also a challenge a because time, yeah. just knowing how to remove an articulated lorry that's stuck up to its axles in mud is, is also, you know, without damaging it and, and wrecking the ground too much. And that, that there's a lot of learned pieces that, you know, you can't kind of learn pre-event. Yeah, just experience is just uh, key for a lot of those and just, 
just not digging yourself too much deeper into whatever mud fire you've already created or you found absolutely rocked up to try and save. Yeah. And and certainly, you know, that you know, in any Greenfield site, you know, you every you know, it's sort of everything goes in in beautiful sunshine and hard ground and then it pours around and and, and it's horrendous. It's very misleading. Very misleading. Everything's gonna be a okay then. Oh no. Why don't you give us a little snapshot for those listening? Kind of what it is you mainly do right now in events and what other side projects you've got going on, so we've got an idea of where you currently are and what you currently do. Uh, event logistics for various events, which, which you know, event logistics I, I think is just kind of a, it's a word which really doesn't mean anything other than doing anything you're asked to do as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And, uh, and also just dealing with the waste that is generated from events because events in themselves create a tremendous amount of waste. They are, the waste is self-generating. People bring a lot of litter to events and um, the, the, the big focus for the last few years is how to deal with that waste on site so that it is uh, recycled, treated in a, in a way that there is no environmental negative footprint so that you know everything is is recycled and anything that can't be recycled is is turned into something with a, with another use and um and that's an area you've got into more over the last couple of years isn't it with yeah last two Tom years Ryan. yeah how did that kind of yeah. start and how things looking with Tom Ryan and the, uh, the, the yeah side of it, it's it's certainly it's certainly expanding a lot because a lot of events are having to look at their footprint and they're actually now becoming more duty bound you know for government incentives and, and policies that they that they can't create waste which which isn't recyclable so uh, so that that's a, that's a you know it's a it's a it's a good time to be involved in that and also sort of like warehousing for events you know the, the next step for the business is not only just mm-hmm. setting things up it's actually you know it, it's it's a case of warehousing that kit in house arriving with the kit uh-huh. taking the kit away so that you're in a position you actually you can maintain it and clean it so that the, so that the next so event it's is a bit of a tanky solution and, for these clients to, yeah. uh, to do all these things yeah and, uh, yeah. You know, and so many of these companies are, are are a little bit kind of removed from their equipment. If you know they've got someone who's actually got the kit, just deal with it. You know, it, it, it works for everybody. I worked on the Nocturne of you guys. Nocturne, the which is a cycling event, yeah, cycling Red event. Hook Crit, which is a single speed cycling event. Uh-huh. Uh, Nocturne Copenhagen, uh, the Revolution Track Cycling. Uh, there's we'll be doing it for Tough Mudder, and we'll be doing it for a big cycling festival next year. So you sidestepped um, Rio. You unfortunately couldn't get to Copenhagen, so we're both working yes. on the Red Hook Crit time. Have you got any other international jobs you're looking for? Um, or anything else on the panel? Yeah, there's. Uh, I think the I think the Nocturne will be going to elsewhere okay. in Europe. So I think Copenhagen will be happening again, and they were talking about maybe Amsterdam. But yeah, the the international stuff would be nice. But I'd rather move into more stuff in the winter, <laughs> Christmas market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Have you got any in mind? You trying to chase up Christmas market? Any, any, that, uh, going any Christmas market? <laughs> Anywhere? <laughs> You're not just happy to have the break right now, just because it's a pretty intense season. The tough mud and all these other ones. Yeah, it's, I'm guessing you need to do a lot of unwinding over the winter. I certainly do anyway. I'm guessing it's, it's, it's a it's a year's worth of work in six months, yeah. isn't it? And you also you know it, you lose grip on reality. You lose grip on normal life. We've had a couple of cardiac arrests down here too, Pete. Mm-hmm. And you just end up going into a bubble. Yeah. And 
the challenge I think for everybody is to budget that that essentially a year's salary that you receive in six months and make it stretch over the year because you know there is a lot of a lot of downtime yeah and you know and, and what I found is actually that the, the odd, odd bit of work through the winter actually you know even if it's just just maintaining a kind of income rather than mm-hmm. depleting it is very very important yeah it helps you um, keep ticking over and not get yeah you get out of shape yeah and the, the event season I feel seems to be stretching out a little bit more but it's still pretty intensive but good fun very varied never boring do you have any key tips for Keeping your head together over those hectic months. Don't do it and just, just get a proper job. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> I think during the event season, you need to have some downtime, but you also need to plan in a lot of rest because you can get quite burnt out and you yeah. can then lose grip on reality. You know, things that, that shouldn't matter suddenly start to matter. So, and then in the winter, I, I think, you know, everyone who works in the events seems to already have an activity yeah. that they are doing, be it traveling or being a ski instructor or, you know, working, uh, having another part-time job. So it, it does seem that the events work is a byproduct of other activities that mm-hmm. people need to supplement income from. More than working on events and then looking for something else to do. But if that is the route, and definitely working on events can be a full-time wage with part-time kind of days, then I, you just need a, a focus because it, when you when you finish the season, you do suddenly feel like you you need to be reintroduced to society. Everything mm. seems very flat because you, you know you, you run on adrenaline and caffeine. It is very demanding. So when it stops, you do go a little bit cold turkey. And, and I think it's important to have something to go on to, be it, be it you know training for. A marathon or just getting into the gym or just doing anything that, that just that occupies you and you, and you maintain that mm-hmm. that feeling of being busy because the events world does get you busy but it also attracts busy people so when you remove that it's tough and other than cycling are you training for anything else so like i know you've got a lot of wheelbarrow medals <laughs> in yeah your house. The, the kumartin carnival yeah uh, tell the listeners about your <laughs> it's, prolific career in the wheelbarrow racing it, um i i uh, where does this happen? So where well, it happens in Kumartin in North, North, Devon, North Devon, and it may not happen anymore, but it's part of the Kumartin Carnival Week, and I believe in the last couple of years the Carnival Week has shrunk back a bit. But the wheelbarrow race is the, uh, I believe, the highlight, and Kumartin has got the longest high street in the village. It's a two or three mile high street. There used to be nine pubs and you used to have to drink half a pint of slops at every pub as you race the village, but it's now, sadly, orange juice, oh, uh, orange squash. And uh, two of you set off the wheelbarrow racing head-to-head. One of you runs, one of you sits in the wheelbarrow, and it is so physically demanding and so exhausting, you have to keep swapping. Um, and I, and I, you know, once you get down near the seafront where the finish line is, the, the crowds are five or six deep. And it's, Glorious and it's incredibly moment. exciting. You know, I've, <laughs> I've been lucky enough to race mountain bikes uh, and road bikes and cyclocross bikes in various places from South Africa, America, uh, this country, France. And I, I don't think anything is qu- quite lives up to the Kumartin World Bar races as a, as a, a sporting accolade. 
Three three years on the trot with three different partners. That uh, and nice. all of them heavier than me. <laughs> <laughs> bad that was bad planning. So you're not training for that anymore and if that's not going on. Anything else you're training for yeah, on, your, on your winter off or? London Marathon. Uh, that, mouth, yeah, nice. and, and only because I just feel it's something I should do once in my life and yeah, yeah. probably never ever do again. And then uh, then I've also um six day mountain bike stage race in Andalusia in, in Spain as well. So that will be okay. March and is one of the toughest in the in the world actually. I did it last year for the first time and made uh-huh. a couple of fairly well it was schoolboy errors really because I've never done that particular event before and, and I won't make those mistakes next uh-huh. time. And it's really just like, you know... It's just knowing the corners and knowing the trail. Well, no, yes. not so much. It, it was, it was I didn't go hard enough in the first day and the result, result on the first day dictates your kind of um, gridding uh-huh. for, the, for the next sort of five days. I was a little bit too relaxed because you go into start pens and I was far too relaxed about arriving on time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always lining up at the back end of my pen and there was a hundred people in the pen. So, you know, if I, if I'd got to start 20 minutes earlier each day, I'd have already been a hundred places ahead when the gun went off. So, um, so those, those elements and, uh, now I know what I'm doing. How large is this this race? A thousand, a thousand I think started and it's, and it's, it's, yeah, it's head to head racing and, the longest stage was the fifth day, and it was 110 kilometers in Spanish mountains, and it took, and it was a lot of very hilly, so 62 miles or 65 miles all off-road, and it did like, I think it took me four hours and 20 minutes. So it, it was pretty epic, you know, if it, I, I didn't know what to expect going there. I didn't think I could physically do it, because I, I knew, you know, I, I knew that I, that I could compete at a decent standard, but with so many good riders and not knowing if I could actually perform day in, day out without my head or my body packing up was very different. And certainly the first day I didn't go hard enough, so I didn't get a great sort of start position on the grid. And when you're amongst a thousand people, it makes a difference. Uh, by day day two, I was knackered. Day three, I didn't think I could do it, and then day four, I felt better. Day five and day six, I was absolutely flying. So I so now I know that how my yeah. body reacts to that as well. Then then that will make a big difference because I can go a lot harder on the first day, knowing that actually I'll still pull out of that of that fatigue and and get stronger and better. Is there much recovery time after a course like that? No, no, because you because a lot of the shorter days you're still racing for. Like the first day was two hours, the second day was a shorter distance, but still four hours. It was just very technical, very mm. hard. Um, the longer day, it was it was te- more technical than I expected for such a distance. But you know, the first first hour, I know it did eighteen miles an hour, so it must have been eighteen miles for the first hour of racing. But essentially, that was just flying through um, fire roads in in olive groves. Oh. Hola, amigos, felicitaciones a México y especialmente. But you know, racing that hard for that amount of time. By the time you get back, you know, have your recovery drink, get back to the hotel, you know, start like using the rollers on your legs, trying to get all the lactic acid and 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 get the blood flowing again, and then and then eating, and then bed, and then getting up and sorting your bike out. No, it's not that much time. No, no, not not anywhere near enough, really. Um, And the and the other challenge was was actually what to wear because it was although it was. March in southern Spain, 
you know, the, the temperature during the day would get up to 22 to 25. Mm-hmm. But when you're lining up at eight in the morning, you know, it, it could still be like four or five degrees. Yeah. So you, so you yeah. just knowing to, to tough out, you know, yeah. that cold in the morning, knowing that it will get warmer also, also was, was the challenge in the first couple of days. I didn't mm-hmm. wear a bit too much and, and I'll, I'll, you know, I won't do that next time. So... Talking of cold events, one of the events I was talking to the adventurous chaps I was at the meeting of earlier is uh, an ice run on which they wow. have an adventure. It's in Siberia on these ice over lakes. No way. And it's like minus 20, it's quite normal. Outrageous. Outrageous. Don't any sort of it. Once I was working for a company called SXS Events Production okay. Company and we were building an ice bar yeah. for Cause Lights brand experience. Wow, okay. They essentially hide this huge fridge freezer, but they had to get it cold enough to get the ice sculptures in there as soon as they got on site. So the chillers were on straight away while we were building everything inside. One, minus two, minus three, bitterly cold. But the, the one good thing was step outside and you find like you just got to the white or something. Yeah, you just, yeah. Oh, it's actually hot, <laughs> take all this off now. But yeah, cold conditions. Yeah, and your brain doesn't work the same, it's not your body doesn't, it, oh, it's not nice. But and then heat's the same, so yeah. it's, just, it's just the other I suppose the other, so, yeah. scale. And the marathon then, so why so the marathon, I, I, I kind of think the same thing actually, I work on quite a few marathons, and recently I've been thinking, you know what, I need to run one, I'm not a runner at all, but uh, I had a bash at running the other day for the first time in a long time, and it did not go well. I met a husband and wife a few years ago on a cycling event, who were raising money for the Milligan charity, cycling from Padstow to London and they were so fit and they were so strong on the bikes that afterwards they, they gave me a lift back to the train station to get back to to uh, back to Somerset and as I was talking to them I presumed that they were cyclists and, and I asked them what their next event was and they looked at me as if to say what do you mean and um, by far they were the best people there I said well you know you, you've done you know, you're brilliant on the bike. You know, you must do this. You know, you must cycle a lot. And they said, no. You know, we've we have we're goal focused. We have trained to do this event this year, and we're not going to do any more cycling events. And I said, right. Well, so what's next? And and the following year they were going to run a marathon, and then they were probably never going to do any more running. And then the year after they were going to learn to ride horses really well because they got a couple of sort of young kids who started to express an interest in horses and felt that they ought to be able to do it. And I just thought that was really cool. You know, I, I, I love cycling and I love, I, I love racing for a, for a goal. I, I don't necessarily want to kill myself to finish 10th at a small local race, but I'm very happy to finish 100th amongst some of the best riders in the world. And with running, I don't enjoy running. I can't imagine I would ever become a runner, but from time to time, when you're interacting with people who do run, when they ask you, have you ever done a marathon? It would be nice to say yes. So yeah, the goal is feeling. to do the marathon next year and and then I will probably never, ever run again. I might... You'll have it under your belt. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so so it's, it's it's a box ticking exercise and, and, a, and actually there's lots of boxes I'd like to tick. Like so. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal 
will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Have you got one in mind? Have you got a certain amount in mind? Oh, sorry, the London one. London, yeah. The big yeah. one. The big yeah. one. Why not? Yeah. yeah. And if not London, Venice. Oh, really? I've never even heard of Venice. It's in November. It's going to be fantastic. It's in Venice. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, you, you can walk around the canals for 26 uh-huh. miles and, and say you've done a marathon. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, yeah, so if I have an epic fail at London, then, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll set my sights on, on uh, doing Venice. One of my one of my sister's old flatmates, um, he's just done the Amsterdam Marathon, I think. Okay. They've got a fantastic marathon as well, apparently. Yeah. Of course all these capital cities have their own fantastic marathons. I always seem so surprised, like, what? Not yeah. New York, not London. <laughs> um, but yeah, of course they have. There's no one so surprised about yeah. it. A friend of mine yeah. has done the Dublin Marathon and he said that was the best ever. He's, he's done New York, he's done London and he's, he's done others maybe the Manchester oh. one as well and, and actually he said that um, he said the best one he's ever done was Dublin oh, just okay. so much fun yeah. you know just great crowds and Guinness and yeah yeah, yeah some amounts of Guinness not taken very seriously but yeah he loved that one <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know a huge amount of running events, even though I work at one or two of them, but I do know the Great North Half Marathon goes down very well. Yeah. Is that half? No, it's a run. I don't think it's a half. It's uh, somewhere between the two. Yeah, I think it is. I don't know what the mileage is. You ought to know. I should do. Yeah. But I work on the, on, on the base. It's I'm long, the kind of site manager of base guns stuff. It's, it's not. It is long. Maybe it's, it's not long. quite a marathon. But it maybe seems it is, to go but... down. I was getting the plane back from Newcastle back to Bristol, and there's. The, the waiting lounge was filled with people just done the run mm-hmm. and they're kind of chatting and it's kind of half dead so over Steve's dropping a bit and I didn't realise so much people love it people absolutely love that run yeah. and there's so many factors to it like crossing the huge pine bridge the huge bridge there in Newcastle yeah. and uh, but also one factor they love one touch they really love at the end in my area in the base area is they have in the finishing shoot they have a huge tent and they have a, a medal ceremony for everyone that goes through kind of yeah it's instead of just being handed one any all the runners all have the their medal placed over their heads right they, yeah so there's a lot of volunteers they're ready to do that as they come streaming out it's like fifty thousand runners or something yeah so but that's one of the small touches that these people emphatically loved about the great north right. it's nice to touch right. it, they thought yeah, because you know every, everybody. You know, it doesn't matter what ability you are. You're going to put the same amount of effort in. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you are if you are Dave from Coventry and you're running that marathon, it's going to take you five hours. You're still putting the same physical effort in to do that yeah. as the elites. And actually, the elites are only doing it for probably two and a bit hours. So yeah. so you could argue that actually you're putting twice the work in because you're still at hundred percent of your ability. You're just going slower than some of the others I think it's very important that it's a that huge any, endeavour yeah any, yeah any event you know it doesn't matter whether you cross the finish line of first or or 2000th mm. that actually you you have a similar experience across, yeah. across that finish line that's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind so let's bring us back to kind of working in events again a bit more now if you hadn't if you worked on the events which have Felt like undertaking a marathon. There's been so <laughs> things going tits up, or maybe not just things going tits up, but just generally challenging. I don't know what comes to mind. The first year we did one of the tough mudders, and it rained 
from the time we got there until the time we left. And it was so, so difficult. Everything took ages and the mud was very slippery. And it didn't matter what job you did, it was more difficult than normal because it was wet, cold, it was slippery. Every vehicle got stuck. We couldn't get vehicles in, we couldn't get vehicles out. Every, the telly handlers were getting stuck. We were having, we were having the big telly getting stuck and getting an even bigger telly to pull the big telly and the small telly couldn't be used. And and it, it just, it, anything that could go wrong did go wrong and it was just because of the weather. I think we need to do a little more all weather testing. Amen. Which, do you remember which site that was? Which venue? It was the first year at Henley. Okay, yeah, It was yeah. up the valley. Uh-huh. And it was so difficult. And I always reference Henley as, as being the toughest. And now, whenever there is a tough event, I always think back it's that actually it can't be as tough as Henley. And that was so difficult. Have you had any... So usually weather-related, have you had any where it's been a bit more... No need to name names, but anywhere it's been more, a bit more systematic in how things have been organised... And any lessons you learned from that that spring to mind? There are many occurrences where you are dealing with a challenge and you just think, what was that person thinking? It can be anyone. And you just think, at what point did you think that was a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think some of these silly moments, let's put them as, may perhaps be a result of some of the ridiculous hours that gets put into events by all people working on them. No, I think ridiculous things are done by ridiculous people. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think, although you do put long hours in, people tend to be smart enough to, to especially people who work on events, to be smart enough to realise when they've done too much. Mm. And I remember I remember putting a winch on. I've done a lot of work and I put a winch on a, a structure upside down. And I, I knew I was tired because I'd, I'd done it like 30 times in in two weeks and then took it off and then put it back on upside down again yeah and at that point i just i just called it and i think yeah i I think i think the nice thing about so many events is that actually they do have quite a duty of care to employees now and that culture's changing a bit more recently yeah yeah reduce those mad long shifts yeah and i don't think it's it's as big of an issue now as it probably used to be Uh And, and the bigger the budget for the event the less of a problem because they're more inclined to throw more people at it. Mm-hmm. Well, long may it last and get better also, yeah, because those long shifts are just killer. Yeah. You just lose faith in your careers perhaps sometimes at yeah. the end of one of those days. Yeah. And, and you know, and the, and the position that, that I think a lot of the, you know, the sort of contractors are in, in, in with the events companies is, is actually, you know, you're quite within your rights to say, actually, do you know what, this is... We need to plan this so yeah. that people aren't doing those wrong shifts. Mm-hmm. Actually, so yeah. So what have you got going on this winter then? Just just chilling, getting ready for that chilling kind of race in March. Chilling. Uh, just add, just adding adding more warehousing space uh-huh. and uh, looking after more kit yeah. and playing the movement of the kit. Mm-hmm. So that there is stuff going on. But actually, you know, that last year I told everybody that I wasn't going to do anything in the winter. And all that happened was people in New York, I wasn't very busy, asked me to do stuff. So I was just as busy and just wasn't making any money from it. This year, I'm, I told everyone I'm not going to do anything. And my plan is to not do anything. So traveling, nice. DIY at home, uh, projects. Somebody mentioned uh, in the warehouse when we were moving things in there, there was uh, an idea thrown around 
of a bouldering or wall climbing, a bit of wall climbing. Yeah, I've so had. Is that becoming um, a reality in the warehouse? Yeah, it might do. I have had some climbing holds for about five years and done nothing with them. Uh, and, you know, for, for no other reason than I just feel that if you've got boxes of climbing holds at home, you should maybe use them. If you've got a big wall. Exactly, yeah. and a great big wall. So that that's good. that is going to be a thing. So that that's a thing. I don't have a dog or cat for the first time in my life, so so I'm going to rescue a cat as well. And uh, so yeah, there's, there's there's lots of things that I need to nice. do this winter, which which I'm going to do, and, and hopefully very few of them will actually be work related. Well, cheers to that. And hopefully, when that wall climbing uh, wall is uh, finished and ready, I can come and join you and help move some stuff in the warehouse, maybe. Yes, definitely. And make some more climbing the bottom and back again. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So some very wise words there from our special guest, Chris Green, and it was it was a lovely opportunity to catch up with him and get to know him a bit better when we had that interview a good three, four months ago. Uh, so the main point being, the most interesting point I thought he brought up and went over in detail was, in order to avoid burning out, if it's possible, aim to have at least a little bit of downtime and rest scheduled into your silly season, as, you know, as it's normally referred to as. And once your season is over, Make sure you have some sort of new focus, whether it's training for something or some new, some new project to put your energies into, so you don't feel like you're going to cold turkey family at the end of the end of the season. So since recording this back in uh, just before Christmas, I've actually been back to see Chris uh, at his place in Exmoor. I can gladly report he is expletively hating training for a first marathon, but he's not given up even for a second. So well done, Chris. I'm sure you'll do it. Um, if you've just bizarrely tuned in right at the end of the episode, you've been listening to the second episode of Field Dispatches. And uh, a huge, and I've mentioned a huge thank you to Chris. And uh, if you'd like to find out more about my company, Tesla Agency, or me, Nick Stokes, you can find out all of that kind of detail, those details from my company's website, Facebook page, and my own Twitter account, which you can find at www.wetessellate.com, facebook.com slash wetessellate, and twitter.com slash other Nick Stokes. Over the course of 2018, we've got plenty more sports and music projects coming up, which is most of what we do, uh, as well as some more interesting adventure travel expeditions and even a little bit of team building work for the first time. So plenty to talk about in episode three, which as mentioned at the start, I will aim to get out a lot earlier than, than this time around. And I'm gonna finish off with a little soundscape that was recorded while I was out of the country recently. I'll leave you to try and guess where it was recorded. If you think you know where it is, don't be shy. Uh, venture a guess as a comment or on whichever online player or platform you're listening to this on, or over on our new Facebook page. Otherwise, have a great spring. Thanks again for tuning in, and maybe I'll see you in a field sometime.
So I gave him some muscle tracks. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Field Dispatches.